Welcome back to A Year With, the podcast where we will learn more about great ideas from our common history, good ideas and bad ideas, by reading together for an entire year. Again, for 2022, we are exploring the Harvard Classics, also known as Dr. Elliot's Five Foot Shelf of Books, which is a world literature anthology. So in that collection of books, the first volume is a one-year suggested reading plan. I am following that plan every week, encountering each reading selection with a spirit of curiosity and discovery. If you're just starting for the first time, I would recommend you go back to the introduction episode to get a sense of what the goal is of this project and uh, what we're looking for as we read through these texts. So the readings for the first week, January 1st through January 7th, are for the first uh, a selection from Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. For the second, a few poems from the 17th century English poet John Milton. For the third... Um, the ancient Roman public figure and orator Cicero's Reflections on Friendship. For the fourth, a folk story contained in the collection of Grimm's Tales entitled The Fisherman and His Wife. For the fifth, the uh, 19th century Italian political activist Giuseppe Mazzani's piece on Lord Byron and Goethe. Uh, a selection from Virgil's Aeneid. And finally, the brutal frame narrative from the collection of Arabic language folktales called The Thousand and One Nights. So let's get started. For the 1st of January, we read a selection from Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. Um, this selection offers what we might call the grand old man of colonial America's Ben Franklin's list of virtues and his plan for achieving them. So his virtues that he lists here from the very start of this selection are first, temperance. Eat not to dullness, drink not to elevation. Second, silence. Speak not but what may benefit others or yourself. Avoid trifling conversation. Third, order. Let all your things have their places. Let each part of your business have its time. Fourth, resolution. Resolve to perform what you ought. Perform without fail what you resolve. Five, frugality. Make no expense but to do good to others or yourself, that is, waste nothing. Sixth, industry. Lose no time. Be always employed in something useful. Cut off all unnecessary actions. Seventh, sincerity. Use no hurtful deceit. Think innocently and justly. And if you speak, speak accordingly. Eighth, justice. Wrong none by doing injuries or omitting the benefits that are your duty. Ninth, moderation. Avoid extremes, forbear resenting injuries so much as you think they deserve. Tenth, cleanliness. Tolerate no uncleanliness in body, clothes, or habitation. Eleventh, tranquility. Be not disturbed at trifles or at accidents common or unavoidable. Twelfth, chastity. Rarely use venery but for health or offspring, never to dullness, weakness, or the injury of your own or another's peace or reputation. Thirteenth, humility. Imitate Jesus and Socrates. So he takes these virtues like one would eat an elephant, one bite at a time. Franklin even produced a written system for tracking his progress. He fell short, remarking with this kind of epic sneak brag that, quote, a speckled axe is best. 
a benevolent man should allow a few faults in himself to keep his friends in countenance, end quote. The most remarkable aspect of this selection is how fresh it feels. So making some allowances for the graceful but efficient 18th century writing style that he uses, this uh, kind of mechanical self-hacking approach to virtue building would not really be out of place in a modern self-help book. Unfortunately, today, we often casually know Franklin for, uh, you know, trying to electrocute himself with a key on a kite string or having a bastard son or being the face of the Benjamins that it happens to be all about. Um, but he really was a remarkable and intellectually diverse figure that's worth learning more about. Finally, I learned a great new word in Franklin's virtue of chastity, venery, the gratification of sexual desire. Okay, so for the second of January, Dr. Eliot gives us a selection of John Milton's early poems. And I'm assuming from the prominence that Milton takes in this collection in general that there is more to come later on in the year from John Milton. But we find here uh, on the morning of Christ's nativity from uh, 1629, a paraphrase on Psalm 114 from 1624, uh, Psalm 136 from 1624, and on the death of a fair infant dying of a cough from around 1625. So, On the Morning of Christ's Nativity is a widely read early poem. Um, it was written while Milton was studying at Cambridge. Uh, this poem, introduced by four stanzas before commencing with the hymn, as he calls it, juxtaposes the, the modesty of the, quote, rude manger uh, with language intended to evoke the the numinous, the, the heavenly, the ethereal, um, yoking together these images from personified nature, balancing darkness and light, the light of God that sort of dims the lights of paganism, the, the false idols of the past. So behind the apparent simplicity of a baby born to a poor family in the outbuilding of a small town inn, or the anonymous brutality of a Roman crucifixion, the spiritual realm here is animated with cosmic drama. This, the second stanza of this poem contains one of my favorite lines for Christmas time, where, quote, he laid aside and here with us to be, forsook the courts of everlasting day, and chose with us a darksome house of mortal clay. This poem is an incredible manifestation of poetic abilities for such a young man. That's justly remembered. Um, for the other poems we're given, one is a rendition or a paraphrase of the 114th Psalm and the 136th Psalm with its refrain of his steadfast love endures forever, which Milton renders as for his mercies I endure ever faithful, ever sure. Um, these don't ring out in glory like on the morning of Christ's activity, but they're interesting as a study of biblical translation and paraphrase, transferring something into a new context. Um, and then finally, we have the, the very plaintive and sad on the death of a fair infant dying of a cough, which commemorates the death of Anne, his two-year-old niece. Um, and again, added a new word to my vocabulary, which I'll probably never use, invermeil, which means to color red, like vermilion. So, for the 3rd of January, Eliot gives us Cicero's uh, selection on friendship. 
So my familiarity with Cicero is basically based in my readings from De Invencione because of my background in rhetoric, where Cicero proposes the five canons of rhetoric, uh, invention, arrangement, style or elocution, memory, and delivery. I'm not as familiar with Cicero as I'd like to be otherwise. My knowledge of him kind of stops at important Roman orator lived sometime before-ish the time of Christ. But anyway, this text is from On Friendship, where Cicero explores the value, the definitions of, and wisdom relating to friendship. So he wrote this later in life when he had experienced much, and he at this time kind of existed on the outs politically. Among the things that Cicero does here is to develop a perspective on friendship that goes beyond the utility of other people to serve our selfish ends, right? So to Cicero, the benefits of friendship are all-encompassing. So friendship serves general human flourishing and not narrow self-interest. Cicero places preconditions on true friendship, however, His rule of friendship is, quote, neither ask nor consent to do what is wrong. So he links it with ethics. So to do wrong for friendship's sake perverts the true meaning of friendship. So friendship and virtue are then conceptually linked together. They're inseparable. There can be no real friendship without virtue. As I reflect on this, these are hard words in American culture where... A younger generation of men in particular, you know, they're left largely bereft of meaningful friendships and mutual respect um, where friendship involves mainly a lack of judgment, which kind of in practice means neutrality in expressing a sense of right and wrong outside of a few areas of interest like bodily autonomy and I think that we can see the good in Cicero's thoughts on friendship here, but the path to where he is from where we are is a very long one. So for January 4th, we have one of Grimm's fairy tales. Um, This is one of the fairy tales collected by the brothers Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm in the early 1800s, and they were preserving a great body of German oral folk narratives. So... The Fisherman and His Wife is a folktale which concerns a fisherman who discovers a talking flounder. His wife, the fisherman's wife, makes him go back and extract wishes, like extort wishes from the flounder. And these wishes become increasingly audacious and really kind of gender-bendy toward the end. Um, So she wishes to upgrade their hovel, their small crude house, to a cottage and then she wants to move up to a castle and then she wishes to be the king the emperor and the pope and then finally quote like unto god where she finds herself instantly back in the filthy hovel so it's kind of a straightforward parable about greed and unchecked ambition that also uh, adapts those kind of uglier tropes of a woman who leads a man into sin and a henpecked husband. Um, in spite of these flaws, it's compellingly written uh, with these, this colorful imagery and increasing suspense and a good structure to it. 
um, as the turbulence and the color of the sea increases each time the fisherman returns to reluctantly coax more wishes out of the flounder. My main question uh, that I came away from this with was when the woman endeavors to be like God, is the return to the the dirty house a punishment, like when Adam and Eve got the boot from the Garden of Eden? Or is it supposed to be a reflection on where one might truly find God? That is, like, with not with the splendor of popes and emperors, but with the poor. I didn't know where to go with that. Um, if you have any thoughts, contact me. On January 5th, um, so what we're given today is Giuseppe Mazzini's, uh, he's, he's a figure with whom I was almost entirely unfamiliar until I did a little bit of background reading for the purpose of getting the right context for this selection. So Eliot's introductory note foregrounds Mazzini as um, an Italian political thinker who conceptualized the struggle in Italy for unification and independence in the mid-1800s. So, you know, Italy used to be uh, broken into many parts on the peninsula, and in the 1800s, the, the various parts of what we now know as Italy was united politically. Um, he often lived in exile and struggled through writing to contribute to the mission of a united, free, democratic Italy. But here, he writes on Lord Byron, the English poet, and Johann Goethe, the German writer. This starts as a comparative piece, right? Placing the two writers, Byron and Goethe, next to one another, appropriately prefaced with the imagery of a storm. Both uh, were active, tormented individuals who defined transformative literary movements and met in their own cultures with worship and revulsion. So in this evaluation of the pair of writers, Mazzini cites what he calls Luther's drunken peasant, um, referring to Martin Luther, um, a man saved from falling off his saddle on one side and then falling off the other side. Uh, philosophically, Mazzini is doing more than literary criticism here. He's presenting a philosophy of humankind where we have like a destiny of perfection, naming what we might usually call a god as the divine idea, which we get closer to partially in life and fully in eternity. So he applies this concept to cultural development. He th Mazzini thinks in epics of history, and he thinks in epics of history and culture where one epic, one era builds on another. Um, so here, Greek culture provided one step toward the emancipation and the development of individual humans. Um, Christianity, another step, but individuality had its limit as humans were left exposed in their individuality. So Mazzini here uses Byron and Goethe to exemplify and personify these dramatic shifts in historical era. So in this, they're kind of vehicles for his greater point, um, which is why in Dr. Eliot's introduction, he notes that the selection transcends literary criticism. So that didn't come from me, that came from him, but you can see what he's talking about there. Okay, so on January 6th, we have 
a selection from the Aeneid. The Aeneid is an epic poem by Virgil. Um, he's the Roman poet who famously and fictionally led uh, Dante through hell and purgatory in the Divine Comedy. Um, Virgil wrote around plus or minus year 25 BC. Uh, the poem itself is a Roman extension of the Greek epic poem tradition we find in Homer. So this text then connects with the fall of Troy that Homer recounted in the Iliad with the mythical foundation of Rome by Romulus in the in the 700s BC. So we're, we're bringing together the Iliad, the Trojan War, Homer wrote about, and yoking that together with the foundation of Rome. That's the myth of the foundation of the city of Rome uh, by Romulus in the 700s. So Aeneas in, in, in this in this poem, Aeneas the protagonist, exemplified these laudable celebratory virtues of duty and piety during a time when Augustus Caesar was trying to recover supposedly lost Roman values. So this this poem also kind of has a political function as well in the time that it was written. So here we're reading from uh, a 1697 English translation by John Dryden. Um, this section is from book two. So in book two, Aeneas is narrating to Dido, who was the queen of Carthage, who will later fall in love with Aeneas. Carthage was a rival to Rome in the Mediterranean. It's, it's with Carthage fought the Punic Wars with Rome a couple of centuries before Virgil wrote. So Aeneas is telling Dido about the fall of Troy and their escape from the city. In this particular selection, Aeneas encounters the ghost of Hector, the slain Trojan warrior. Aeneas asked Hector's ghost why he had come so late to defend Troy. Hector advises Aeneas that Troy must be abandoned, and he entrusts the statues of the gods to Aeneas. Aeneas climbed to the, the terrace of, like, the family palace, and he observed the wasteful ravage, the, quote, wasteful ravage, and he gets ready to go into battle, quote again, I run to meet the alarms, resolved on death, resolved to die in arms, end quote, after rounding up some friends. However, he met with Pantheus, a priest of Apollo, who reported the doom of the city, and together, Aeneas and his companions resolved to join the battle, invoking the beautiful line, quote, that one spirit animated all. In a turn, a Greek, Androgios, mistook Aeneas and his men for Greek reinforcements. They slew Androgios and his men, explaining, quote, let fraud supply the want of force in war. That fraud has its limits. Again, quote, they first observe and to the rest betray our different speech, our borrowed arms survey, and many of Aeneas's men are killed one by one. So through a back door, and I had to look this up, uh, through a postern door, they entered the palace of Priam, the king of Troy. They push a wall over onto the Greeks. However, more Greeks led by Pyrrhus uh, prevail, and as the palace falls, resulting in the death of Priam, um, and then after seeing an omen, Aeneas takes his wife, father, and son, and the wife, uh, Creasa, is lost in the den, and this is where Troy and Rome are linked as we start out on this, on this journey. And so this is a very important uh, cultural myth 
that links together, you know, two of the most important cultures of the ancient world. On January 7th, we have a selection from the introduction of the Thousand and One Nights, or uh, what you might hear called the Arabian Nights. This is the source uh, for familiar stories like Alibaba and Aladdin. Um, but this story, this is the story that provides the context or the frame for the remaining stories in the collection. And wow, is it a brutal story for us to end the week with. Um, first, you squirm a bit while reading it, since the brutality touches on our own American history with race-based slavery and sexism. Uh, of course, the connection is all mine. It's, it's an anachronism to place the anxieties of our own culture's past onto a medieval Arabic story. The conditions are different, but certainly no less vicious. So... To sum this up, the setting here is the ancient times. So sort of uh, kind of like a parallel to once upon a time that you would hear in a fairy tale. Uh, where a king of India and China named King Shariar leaves to see his brother, King Shah Zaman. So King Shariar leaves to see his brother, King Shah Zaman. Here uh, we learn as an aside the term Memluk. Again, something else I had to look up. Uh, or, or Mamluk. Uh, which Eliot's note tells us is a male white slave, um, as opposed to the black slaves we see later on. Surely this note is, you know, somewhat anachronistic from Eliot, because as I understand it, there was no concept among medieval Arabs or anyone in medieval times of white people as a single racial group. But um, anyway, King Shariar left to see his brother, and he forgot something, and he returned to find his wife, sleeping beside, and I quote in the translation, a male Negro slave, end quote. Um, and he was filled with fury and killed them both. Um, he continued to his brother's palace, and while there, the brother Shazaman observed a similar situation with his wife and a black slave, along with what seemed like a sort of orgy with 20 women and 20 slaves. So after a time, these two resolved to wander to quote renounce the regal state and try to find some others who had experienced this calamity i, I guess this is on the principle of misery loves company um this far into the story we already see a heavy dose of racial or ethnic anxieties and fears of cuckoldry or dishonest cheating women you know and never mind the murder and don't worry there will be more murder lots more murder um, on their trip, they meet a genie who has a young woman locked in a chest, and she recites a quote from, quote, one of the poets. Never trust in women, nor rely upon their vows, for their pleasure and displeasure depend upon their passions. Back at home, King Shariar has his wife beheaded and continues to behead each woman he marries after the wedding night so she can't cheat on him. He does this for three years, which begins to cause what we might call a supply chain crisis of marriageable women. The vizier, or his uh, second-in-command, if you want to think of a vizier, think of like uh, Jafar in the Aladdin films, you know, the second-in-command um, who kind of does the bidding of the ruler, right? Um, he finally could find no other women to feed into the maw of the stupendously deserved disturbed king than the vizier's own daughters so the uh older daughter named shahrazad 
had a deep knowledge of stories, and she developed a plot or a plan to keep the king from killing her. She would begin a story each night, but would leave it unfinished, so he would be held in suspense like a cliffhanger and stay his killing for one more night. So in the most favorable light of this frame narrative, we see here the power of words and storytelling, but also the clever wiles of women in the conception of the author and the culture from which the story came. Um, one very maybe odd kind of a stretch, a faint parallel I see here is with the biblical book of Esther, uh, where Esther risks her life by marrying the troubled king uh, Hasuerus by hiding her Jewish background or Hebrew background, and then risking her life and using her position to intercede with the king on behalf of the Jewish people. Uh, the parallels are not strong, but are present. And that's where I'll stop with that narrative. So those were our first seven days of a year with Dr. Elliot's five-foot shelf of books. So we've jumped all over the place. We've jumped all over the world. We've jumped all over time. We've gone from Ben Franklin in the uh, 18th century to Milton to Cicero to German folk tales, uh, Arabic language folk tales, Virgil's Aeneid. We've been all over the place and this trend will continue in the future. Remember that if you want to connect with me, you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Zach Garrett, Z-A-C-H dot G-A-R-R-E-T-T. And you can email me at zach.garrett at outlook.com, Z-A-C-H dot G-A-R-R-E-T-T at outlook.com if you have any feedback. Um, thanks for spending this time with me, and I'll see you next week.